Hey, everybody, and welcome back to Bikes and Big Ideas on the Blister Podcast Network. I'm David Golay, the bike editor at Blister, and you can check out all of the stuff that we've been riding and reviewing recently over at blisterreview.com. Okay, so We Are One has already made a name for themselves manufacturing carbon wheels in Canada, but that apparently wasn't enough of a challenge, and they decided to make a bike too. The arrival just, well, arrived, so we figured it was a good time to have Dustin Adams back on to talk about the new bike and their plans for a modular platform with more models to come, all the details on the design, construction, and manufacturing, why Dustin wants to see more North American-made bikes, and along the way we get way more big ideas out of Dustin than we bargained for. This is a really great conversation that covers a ton of ground, so let's get right to it. Hey, Dustin, welcome back on Bikes and Big Ideas. Great to have you here again. How are you today and where are you today? Yeah, not too bad. Thanks for having me back. Uh, I'm currently sitting in my office here in Kamloops trying to, you know, figure out the puzzle. Sounds like you guys have been staying busy from what I hear. Yeah, it's been uh, it's been a crazy last few months, no doubt about it. Well, I think actually the last 18 months, a few is uh, an understatement. Main reason we wanted to bring you on here today is that you guys just launched your first bike, the Arrival, and uh, you sort of lightly broke that news actually on here last time you were on just about 18 months ago, like you said. I can imagine it's been quite a trip since then, so wanted to chat about the new bike and get the rundown on the whole project. Yeah, no, it's uh, it's been, like I, say, like I said, 18 months ago, it's almost two years exactly we've been working on this project. We're a little bit ahead of, of schedule, but uh, we're stoked to have it out there into the, the real world and start to garner some attention and some feedback uh, on what we've been working on. Yeah, well, it's pretty cool looking bike. We'll get into that a bunch more here. So for people who haven't seen it, bike's called The Arrival. We've got a first look up on, our, on Blister that you can check out, and it's a... 150 millimeter rear travel kind of all around her trail enduro bike designed around a 160 fork 29 inch wheels probably not a great surprise that you kind of for that first model went for sort of the bit like the middle of the bell curve kind of on the spectrum from you know full-on dh bike to a cross-country rig just aimed for slot in the middle and one of the things that i really liked about the way you guys described the bike in the launch was as you put it, the 90% rule, right? You can't have a bike that is fully the best at absolutely everything at the same time. And so you acknowledge that rather than going for all the marketing cliches of climbs like a belly goat, descends like a DH bike and blah, blah, blah. And sort of just said that, hey, we're going for something that's versatile, can do a whole lot of stuff. It's not going to be exactly a World Cup DH race bike. It's not going to pedal like a cross-country bike, but it's going to be, it'll do a bit of everything you want to throw at it, which makes a lot of sense for your first bike. Is that pretty fair summary of how you guys kind of thought about it and just coming up with the vision for the bike yeah i mean the bike has evolved from day one concept to to deliverable uh it's it's a platform and we treat it as a system now we wanted a bike that was capable on every level of of or every aspect of mountain biking obviously i think that's every company's goals um, we had to pick a suspension platform that would allow us to achieve it. But at the same time, we created essentially two triangles, a front and a rear triangle of carbon. And we want that, that platform, um, to expand. So the arrival was the, the middle ground and, uh, it's going to allow us to achieve, uh, more on the top end of travel and also drop down to, uh, a more, um, supple less travel bike that's built around more trail and i guess what we call down country in our business nowadays so it was a good platform to start on we want to start in the middle that's kind of where that came from 
Yeah, makes a lot of sense. And I was going to ask about this part later, but I guess since you just teased it, let's get right into it here. At the end of the launch for the arrival, you said, quote, we're just getting started, hinting that there was a bit more to come. And it sounds like you're envisioning that that platform is going to be adaptable to a couple of more different models. And I'm am I taking it right that that's going to be using the same front and rear triangle with just some link swaps or something like that to adapt between them? Yeah, I mean, we originally wanted to launch the bike with exactly that concept uh, where we had, you know, three sets of links for our our consumers and two shocks and an air shaft. And you would be able to run a bike from 120 in the rear all the way up to 170 uh, and the fork from 150 to 170. So um, it was a very robust kind of... um, entry into the market and we thought it would confuse a lot of people so we decided to step back use the arrival as our launch pad and then yeah make sure the carbon will or the laminate will already withstand going up so that's going to be our easiest win um, and then we're going to look at um, engineering the, the laminate to come down as well into more of like that one 130 140 150 bike for the lighter trail guys but yeah right now that right that front and rear triangle uh is testing at downhill standards so we've been running it uh with a fox 40 um triple clamp no problems uh with a 172 rear end um and we've also been running it and racing at the ews with a 170 180 um setup with a 38 and that's no changes to the laminate at all that's basically what that consumer is going to get today if they buy an arrival the concept, I guess, is actually pretty similar in some ways, at least, to what uh, Gorilla Gravity is doing with their modular f- frame platform. They've got, well, five different models between the 27.5 and 29-inch bikes, all based around the same front triangle with basically just seat stay swaps. But are you saying that the you're imagining that the shorter travel version of the bike to come is going to actually be using a different layup for the front? triangle to try to cut a little bit of weight or alter ride characteristics a little bit yeah i think it's going to be purely around weight for sure and we'll probably make the bike a little more snappy um just because it's going to be more of a climbable bike um we have the ability to do that so why not explore it we could keep the suspend or sorry keep the laminate the exact same with the right the right kind of build kit, the right fork, right shock. And we could get that bike into the 28, 27 pound range, which is still pretty competitive weight um, and keep the laminate exactly the same. So we're not set on one thing or the other at the moment. Um, we'll look to see kind of what we can achieve um, and what the ride character ride characteristics are like as we go lighter. Um, we're also looking at um, creating a, a compression molded carbon link for that bike on the lower end too. So we go and cut a lot of the weight out of the aluminum links that we currently have. Um, some wins like that, that we're kind of looking at for sure. Sounds like you're not, not making things easy on yourselves. <laughs> yeah, we want to make it easy. That's, uh, you know, you mentioned Gorilla Gravity and I think they have a great platform and they're they're keen on making bikes and they understand what, what we have for capability um, as far as manufacturers and, and the workforce and the knowledge that we have in North America. And I think it makes it really problematic if we're going to be making many different models at many different levels, you know, you, a different 170 bike from a completely different platform. I think this is what we would like to call smart manufacturing, where you can see what you can build off of with one single idea um, and to showcase that the ability from that one single idea is actually quite good. Looking forward to seeing what you have in store for the other versions around the platform. Yeah, yeah, we've been testing it already, so it's it's going to be exciting. 
we sort of lightly touched on this a little bit already, but let's go just a little bit more into the suspension design on the bike. I mean, like we kind of just said, you were hoping for a platform where you could alter links around and make a bunch of different models based around a similar platform. But how did you end up kind of working out the suspension kinematics for the bike? And how did you decide on a general platform to work with? Any particular goals for the design, any of that kind of stuff? Yeah, so our designer is uh, Vladimir Yordanov. He's, uh, you know, made his own carbon downhill bike. Uh, he's he's a big fan of uh, a floating rear rear triangle like I am. And uh, we got together when, when we designed the arrival and it was a very simple decision to go down that route for us. Um, it allowed for some great characteristics that we could play with and tune. Uh, the challenges were, you know, obviously keeping away from the DW patent and stuff like that with the floating ring links. Um, so we, we edged up as close as we could and, and we took advantage of a lot of the high anti-squat values of the bike. Um, we increased the leverage ratio quite a bit. Uh, so it's a very supple off the top. We were really wanting that, that nice feel. Um, it starts, you know, at about a 3.45 on the, on the leverage chart. So it's quite aggressive. And then we also ask the riders or for the ideal setup to have a, a pretty, I guess, out of industry norm sag point of 25%, 22 to 25% as an ideal. So we want more active travel than we want just kind of uh, inactive travel. Um, so the depression on the bike isn't really that important. Um, and it's about preserving geometry. So the whole system itself is based on, uh, you know, a floating rear end, um, that has a high anti-squat value, so it pedals really well, uh, a low sag point, or I guess a, a, a not a very deep sag point, so you get more active travel, and then uh, a very nice supple off the top, so the, the bike tracks really well at low speeds. Um, and then you combine that with the geometry preservation that we're trying to achieve, and, and I think that's why uh, everybody's so far seemed to really like the bike. Yeah, I was going to ask about the uh, relatively low recommended sag. One of the things that we saw when we ran our first look at the bikes, we had a bunch of people going like, oh, wow, look at that bottom bracket drop. It's super low. But like you said, it's also designed to be running a bit less sag than most bikes are so that the actual kind of dynamic bottom bracket height once you're sagged in is relatively normal, basically. That all totally makes sense. That checks out. But just sort of curious why you chose to target that particular kind of setup decision and what what led to that. Yeah, relying more on the on the leverage ratio and the kinematics than the shock tune is, I think, what the, the goal was. If we if we follow the numbers and we we chart what we want the bike to behave like, if you want it to to follow the curve and to be correct, the sag point needed to be where it needed to be. Uh, and when we did that, is exactly the main outcome was we were able to drop the BB as low as we could without having crank hit um, and make it kind of, you know, normal for what everybody else is riding. So most of our weight is as low as we can possibly get it in the bike um, because there's no secret to that. The lower you get the weight, the better the traction point is going to be for the rider. So, you know, we just kind of tuned everything as a system, looked at a hole and then said, well, this, if we run a 20, if we do run like a 25% sag rate, that's 5% more than what most people call as industry norm what's the outcome feel like and that's when we had to you know bring up the leverage ratio and widen that out a bit and it still achieves exactly what we wanted so you just kind of tweak the numbers and you play with the the the, the triangles a bit and then uh, we ended up where we wanted to be i think it kind of just goes to show that getting too fixated on any one particular number in the geometry chart and whatnot can, doesn't get you very far 
kind of need to look at the whole things as a package. And yeah, and I think that's Vlad's strength. I mean, to be honest with you, he's a he's a wizard with that. Um, you know, hats off to him. It's he's he steered most of it from feedback that we wanted to give at the beginning. Um, at the end of the day, it's his baby. Um, and, and yeah, we, we rode the bike for the first time when he was uh, in the UK uh, on his way over to Canada. And um, me and my machinist, Jill, were, were just blown away at how you know, you would think you would jump on a prototype bike and you're like, is this going to be still little, little things to, to, you know, fiddle with and figure out. But we were immediately shocked at how well the bike tracked, how supple it was off the top, how it wouldn't just sit in and become this middle stroke dead bike. It was actually active through the travel. Um, and it had such a low BB that we're like, this is it's just what like you know we called him we're just like what have you done here and he, he kind of took offense to it like we were bagging on him but we're like no like like this is amazing we don't understand like how did this all come together and it'd be so perfect that we literally don't have to change anything he's like well i just know what i'm doing so it was great to see his confidence and to see his design come uh come to fruition and, and not be changed i mean we did we did very little changes to the prototype bike uh to the production bike so it was pretty cool well, I'm certainly looking forward to getting on one when we can make that happen and look forward to finding out more about it. One of the other decisions on the bike that I thought was interesting but makes a bunch of sense ultimately is going with the 157mm Super Boost rear end, but then a normal boost crank set to pull the chain line inboard a little bit. And this is something I've been kind of banging on for a little while is that I think on kind of trail and enduro bikes where people are increasingly just grinding themselves up a super long fire road or extended climb and then ripping right back down something. Most of the kind of typical standards for rear end width and chain line are all based around putting the chain line straight right in the middle of the cassette. But most people are doing the vast majority of their pedaling sort of in the somewhere in the lower half of it, really more realistically. Was that pretty much your thinking too, just to get the chain line straighter in the gears where you're actually really putting down most of the power most of the time and doing most of your climbing? And is there more to it than that? There's some really amazing tools out there right now that we we utilized for this. So um, I'm really fond of what SRAM's done with their Axis uh, drivetrain. And it, we utilize it as a tool. Um, coming into the arrival, I put it on my bike and it allowed me to track which gear I was in at any given moment for an entire season. So I use that data knowing that we wanted to build an all-mountain bike. And I generally, and I can't use that term all-mountain, so we call it a ride-the-hell-everywhere bike because I don't want to get in trouble. Um, but if, essentially, that was our goal. And I rode many bikes throughout the season with the the axis drivetrain and it gave me data to say well this is where you spend most of your time in your bike throughout an entire season and with that we said well it doesn't make any sense to design it the way that it's currently being done we spent most of i spent most of my time in gear one to eight uh, i guess the lowest to the to eight speed um and been very 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 little time in the other gears so what we decided to do is if we need, if we took advantage of the 157 for all that it does offer as benefits the boost or sorry the bracing angle on the rear wheel we, we make wheels we get it that's amazing it does make the best possible outcome um, and then push the 
drivetrain out further so that we get a better chain line for the gears that I spent most of my time in or people that were going to ride this said arrival bike as an all mountain bike. Um, what's the optimal chain line look like? And it only made sense to keep the Q factor and the, and the, uh, the boost front, tra the boost front spacing, and then the, bring the super boost out rear. So based on data and based on what we wanted to do and wanted to achieve and what we want to see people doing with this bike, that's why we went that route. I could tell that you guys thought that might be a little bit controversial. I think the uh, info on the super boost, the rear end started like 157, hear us out or something to that effect. It's like liberal versus, uh, uh, you know, right wing. It's crazy. People really have a hard on for it, but um, I, I get it. Be, I understand it, but it's never really been done this way before. And I, mean, I can't see people... I, I, there's tons of space for heels on their bike. You know, up to, we tested guys up to size 13 shoes, no issues with heel click or heel hitting. We were able to shape the chain stays to make that go away. Um, I don't see how this is any, anything bad other than the fact that maybe you had a boost bike and you want to buy one of our frames and you can't transfer your wheels over. That's the only argument I could say like, okay, I can understand why you might be upset about that. But other than that, the system that it sits with right now is undeniably, I think, the best chain line on the market. Yeah, I, I think that sounds right. I mean, the sort of technical benefits of what you've gone with make sense, but I could understand someone not being thrilled to need to replace a hub or rear wheel in order to make a fit off of what they're coming off of previously, which, you know, fair enough, but at some point, progress marches on and what have you. Yeah, I mean, it's it's... I think the best comment I read was, uh, it's our way of selling more wheels. <laughs> <laughs> okay, sure. I guess that's the point. Uh, we're limited manufacturer on the bike, but if the, the 300 plus, 400 plus wheels that we're going to sell with the arrival makes us, uh, you know, shower in money, then so be it. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, can't please everybody. No. Well, actually, on that note, though, uh, one of the other things I wanted to ask about the bike is right now you are not offering frame only and just have two complete builds on offer. This is another comment we got a bunch of when we ran the first look. It was, oh, they're so expensive. And they're both really high end builds. But as we noted, they're actually pretty good value for what you're getting. They're, they just are high end and consequently somewhat expensive as a result. But compared to, you know, similar builds from other brands, you guys are actually doing quite well, especially considering as we'll get into that frames are made in Canada, et cetera. Do you have plans to expand the range of builds offered or go to a frame only at some point? I know component availability right now is brutal. And so it wouldn't surprise me at all if your answer was just, yeah, well, this is what we can get our hands on right now and we'll have more at some point. But just curious. Yeah, I mean, you hit the nail on the head. So, I mean... When we launched this or we had, I guess, you can't just go to the store and launch a bike. It takes an immense amount of planning. So while we were planning this, we had the lovely pandemic and then the supply chain really kind of just exploded. We had people putting in forecasts that are currently so ridiculous that it doesn't make any sense. Like, um, you know, right now, if I'm to go out and buy uh, a fork, a suspension fork. It's the number one problem in the industry right now, next to drivetrains. Is Asia is seeing such an in increase? They don't have um, raw materials to make the parts. And then, if I was to put in my order today, 560 days from today, I can't guarantee it, but I might have those suspension forks be ready at the factory to ship to me. 
So when we did our original and our initial one, it was 300 days. It's already ballooned up to another half a year. So we were given no options. There's highest demand from our vendors at the, you know, the NX, GX, and the SX drivetrains, um, and then the lowest, lower end suspension. So if we're going to launch a bike, we were given one option, and it had to be a high-end build. Um, there was availability there. They were going to meet our targets, and, and we were able to launch a complete. So the only way we could launch a complete is the way that we've done it. Um, I think if you look at what we've put on that bike, um, as far as component spec being, you know, it's, it's pretty well by the bike and there is not one thing I think that anyone will be upset about on either of those models. They're extremely well equipped. And then if you do price them against other people out there in the market that offer something similar, not just going, it's an access drivetrain to an access drivetrain. Well, there's, you know, a lot of other benefits there. Um, I think we're doing extremely well for a price point. Um, it is unfortunate due to the supply chain that we weren't able to come to the market with a, a GX or an NX build or something lower end that would fill that hole. Had we had the availability, 100% we would have done that. So that's put us in this current position where, okay, we've, we've launched with a complete, the, the industry supply chain has got tenfold worst and next year we will only be selling, uh, frame onlys. So yes, we will be doing frame only as soon as we go through and, and manufacture these first uh, 400 bikes that we've already pre-sold and, and they're sold out at this point. Once we hit the, the 400th one out the door and those bikes are gone, then switching over 100% to frame only and we'll be offering frame only for uh, 2022 uh, until this supply chain nightmare calms down because it just doesn't make any sense to be a part of it. Yeah, that's pretty much the answer I figured I was going to get there, but good to have it uh, officially out there get that clarification it's gonna be and it, things might change i mean i i'm sh i think we're coming to the precipice of it right now in the industry if you want to talk about the supply chain like one of our vendors our spoke vendor basically sent out a message yesterday and saying we're no longer accepting forecasts because what's happening now is people are just forecasting out the industry saying well this is what we think is going to happen in the next two years and we're we're forecasting our orders out for 2025 now and it's like well it's not real. Somebody somewhere along the line is going to get bent over by the supply chain and it's going to affect them to the point where that company will no longer be in business. And that's a reality. Um, it's going to be a hard reality, but I think you look to see a lot of people that are reliant on the supply chain, take a big hit and potentially be done. Uh, so it's a really scary business to be involved in um, and to see the supply chain on the other side of the world putting that message out there right now uh it's uh it's not going to be fun next two years at all if you're uh if you're an owner of a company well and on that note though kind of sounds like you guys might be in a much better position than a lot of these other companies given that you're doing your own manufacturing in canada and almost all of the parts or the raw materials rather for the frame as you've noted are coming from 500 miles away from Kamloops or closer yeah i mean we've retooled we've rejigged and we've looked at everything and We've now, for 2022, our plan when we go frame only will be everything will be made in North America that comes on that bike. Will we be not reliant for one, sorry, frame only. Uh, everything that's on that frame will come from North America. So we're working with Push 11.6 uh, for suspension. Um, we will offer an air version of that um, from an Asian vendor, but it's not essential. 
uh, Chris King headset gets put in i9 hubs. We're going to be doing a rolling chassis, so i9 hubs with our wheels, um, and then the frame. Uh, so it's going to be quite a sweet little uh, package that we put together once we get to the through these initial bikes. And uh, I think you're going to, I think a lot of the people are going to be quite impressed with the price point at that point that we can put out there. Uh, people will be quite shocked that we're able to do what we can do. That's cool. So if I have it right, you're currently getting the titanium hardware for the frame from China. To take it, you're planning to bring that into North America too? Uh, yeah, we just didn't have lathe capacity at the time. Um, so we're currently working on just proofing out all of our bolts and titanium hardware um, here. Uh, it's bolt manufacturing is not, not easy and it's also not pretty. Um, they do such a good job and, and we worked with this vendor with, with any, with our stem bolts and stuff like that in the past. Uh, so we will continue to try to work with them, um, just based on their quality. And if we can surpass their quality with what we were currently prototyping in house, then obviously we'll look to pull that here as well. How much of a challenge was it in order to hit that target of the 500 mile radius for all the raw materials from the frame i i mean hey we we sit in a pretty a pretty handsome area for that to happen i mean we want to let everybody know that that's wasn't our goal the outcome however is true um we're lucky enough to have an aluminum smelter two aluminum smelters really close to us uh we're lucky to have a, a fiber vendor i mean they may make their fiber in Japan, but the pre-preg raw product that we buy for our frame comes out of Washington. So, you know, you could dance around that one for sure. I mean, it's, it's the best we could possibly do. And to say that we've got this great outcome based on everyone that we're working with in our area, that's the end, that's the end goal there. That's what we're trying to say. So, you know, it's not to, not to say that if you do manufacture a bike in North America and, and you're having to truck your aluminum, you know, from the smelter in Washington down to say, you know, uh, uh, Utah or whatever, or wherever you want to manufacture your bike, it shouldn't be a negative against that company. It's just the current supply chain that we have available in North America and where we're at, it's within a 500 mile radius. So it's, it's pretty awesome to see that if you are ever contemplating to manufacture a bike, near us there's some great capabilities that you have right out your back door something we've been talking about a bunch at blister of late's just the they across the bike and ski industries we're seeing a lot of companies making various moves trying to reduce their footprint and their impact of the f- products that they're putting out and a lot of the talk thus far has been just about stuff like the materials that go into the products and figuring out how to make those more sustainable in certain ways but just cutting down on all the transportation is a is enormous yeah exactly and so even if it's all the same stuff just getting it from from nearby and not having to ship it as far goes a really long way on that front yeah i think the ski business seems to be i think the bike business is going to follow that trend i think the ski business is ahead of us because i think the overhead to get into building skis isn't crazy you can you can i mean a skilled person in their garage with the right tools can build a pretty sick set of skis nowadays there's enough um uh, available product to do so and you're starting to see a ton of these little shops pop up and make some rad skis i mean there's one just down the road from us in vernon skevic they're 
couple of brothers, you know, started in the garage and I bought a set of skis awesome off of them this year. They do a unique kind of maple edge on it. And I'm like, I'm blown away. I'm like, wow, this is cool. But then there's, you know, two, there's a board manufacturer in, in Revelstoke. And then there's other guys in, in, um, Pemberton starting up and there's another, uh, guy, I think there's another board, uh, manufacturer in Pemberton. You're seeing all these little ma and pa shops pop up, which is really cool to see manufacturing on the ski side, uh, explode on a smaller scale and keep it more local. And I really, I would love to see that happen in bike. Um, if there was ever a guy in Vernon or a guy in Kelowna or a guy in Bellingham to do what we're doing there, I would get so behind that guy and help that guy or girl. It'd be great if it was a girl, um, take that on. And, uh, we would love to see more competition, uh, doing what we're doing. Cause once we see that growth happen, I think, we're going to see a lot of uh, us pool together and uh, we'll start to push back and, and create some cool product and bring the costs down and make it a more attractable um, labor pool and people want to get involved to do what we're doing. Yeah, I like that vision of sort of the cooperation and collaboration. And to your point, that does actually happen a bit on the ski side. I can think of too, like, for example, I know they've talked about it a bit on various blister podcasts uh, moment knowing 3p of a history of buying materials together and splitting up you know to do a big order of teton all or something and yeah it'd be very cool to see the bike equivalent of that yeah i mean let's not kid ourselves the the business is big enough to handle it there's enough demand out there that the larger players in the in the market they're they're so big they're a big part of the reason why the supply chain currently is where it's at that the ma and pa shops, this is, this is your time. This is your opportunity right now. It is not going to get better than this moment now. So all I can say is if you're thinking about it, stop thinking and do it because doing it now is when you want to be doing it. It's, it's, it's ripe. I was going to ask you for a big idea at the end of the show, but you might've already just dropped it early. <laughs> That's pretty good. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I really do. I, I wish it had happened. I would love to collaborate with other people that make it. I mean, there's a guy that came, came through the other day. He's welding titanium bikes. He's working in Whistler. I and mean, his wife are, are talking about manufacturing the bikes. I said, Hey, why don't you come here? Let's work with it. And he has a shop right next door. Let's do it. And he's like, wow, you know, and have the hesitation. It's like, it, it, you got to go, you got to go do it, do it. And it, we, I would help that guy out more than anything. I mean, we got machine capacity, we got, you know, carbon capacity, we got, you know, any, anything you need, what do you need? Let me help you. And, uh, I think that's the cool thing is we're going to start to see, uh, that flourish. And I hope that happens. Me too. That'd be really cool. So everyone listening to this, you hear Dustin, get on it. Don't email me. Just do it. <laughs> <laughs> to circle back to the bike a little bit, one of the other things that you guys noted in the launch and discussion of it was the possibility for you to do at least certain repairs on the frames down the line in addition to offering a very robust warranty on them. How much do you anticipate being able to really do on that front? And what do you imagine that whole process looking like? Yeah, I mean, so the the initial goal is to design a bike that doesn't break and doesn't wear out and bag out, and that's our initial goal. I think we've achieved a, a pretty damn tough layup, and that will last for a long, long time. Um, but things will be things, and stuff will happen, and people will do certain things that are unforeseen, and, and 
who knows? It makes no sense to bin a bike that can be repairable. So, you know, if a guy gets a right, a rock strike up into the down tube, puts a big dent in there and it loosens off some fibers. Why would we want to throw that bike in the trash when we can bring it back here? We can cut out some of the fiber. We can do a repair on it, do a patch, sand it back to, to, to enough or like back to strength and make it strong and make sure it's all going to hold up, repaint it and give it back to the person. Um, everyone talks about how carbon is not recyclable and it's not really true. I think it's recyclable, but it's only recyclable at scale. And that's our problem is that, you know, we talk about our, our rims and, and every, all the other products. And unfortunately with a rim, you can't, or you can't easily bring a rim back into true and, and repair it. It's kind of one of those things where you, you know, your tires are, um, are really reliant on a true diameter. And if you start to change that diameter, things can go really unsafe. So we don't think that's a great opportunity. Um, but for the frame, there's so many things you can do to fix and repair it back to new that if we don't explore that and we don't offer that and make that um, solution number one to a problem, uh, then we're not really doing our part as a company to ensure that we're not landfilling and keeping stuff out of the landfill. On the rim front, you're just talking about you can't go putting more material into the bead seat and have the tire still sit and work right. Is that kind of pretty much what you mean? It's, yeah, it's a very complex thing. So you, I mean, we could take, uh, like we've had a handful of catastrophic failures from like ridiculous, like, you know, impacts on a, on a case on a big jump or something like that, where the, the rim has come apart and it's not just one, it's like a couple pieces, you know, those ones. Yeah. There's nothing you can do about that. But if most of our impact, uh, most of our warranty claims are from impact. We don't have like, I think we might have a handful of warranties this year that are, you know, we, we might've made, maybe not put the fiber quite where we needed to on a, on a, on a spoke hole and a, a, a spokes pulled through prematurely, something like that. That's something that we could repair. Um, but most of our impact breaks are from people just purely hitting something that's blown through the travel and blown through everything. Those to get that back into the mold, reshape it, um, apply fiber to it. The, the problem is, is that if you change, I mean, a 622 bead seat for a 2.9 uh, wheel is so hyper, it has to be so hyper accurate so you don't blow off a tubeless tire. I wouldn't want to risk anybody's life in, in knowing that, you know, okay, yeah, we've repaired it, we've saved it, but can't guarantee that the tire is not going to come off. I mean, it's just not really, that's not something I'm willing to risk, risk, sorry. So it's, it's too accurate on the, on the tire measurement. So we, we choose to just um, put those ones aside. And man, speaking of tires blowing off of rims, we talked about this in the podcast last week, but I still can't believe that Reese Wilson exploded his front tire in that berm at worlds and managed to keep that one upright and i'm still in awe of that one that guy's put out some pretty heroic efforts this year eh? between that and the crash at uh was it marbor marbor he had that big off too thanks think that was the one but yeah either way just absolutely monster crash and <laughs> no doubt about that you can't take that away from him one other interesting note that i saw somewhere in your discussion of the arrival was that you talked about not wanting to do fully guided internal routing because you've seen that causing issues with voids in the construction of other frames. Is it basically just that you, it's real hard to get the kind of compaction that you need once you're working around that extra guided tube and what have you? Yeah. 
Yeah, so we've front triangle. We've decided to you know obviously not do it there because we've made the access ports so easy to go for, um, both for the head tube and whatnot. So the cables route really easily through the front end. But yeah, what we what we've found on frames that we've tested and pulled apart and cut apart and reverse engineered and looked at was anyone with tube and tube, um, uh, you would see what we call a, it's like a pressure drop. So a bladder can only form. A shape that is a positive it can't undercut or or go around the tube and give yourself good pressure so behind the tube if you're if you're laminating and you're inflating with a bladder uh, you'll get a pressure drop and then that pressure drop you'll see uh, bad compaction which then leads to down the road some kind of a fatigue crack or something like that the bikes that we generally got to cut apart were warranty frames that we picked up from local bike shops to look at there was a one particular brand that uh, is really famous for their superior tube and tube, but the five or six frames that we pulled out from that brand, all of them had micro cracking along the frame, what they warranted, but the, you know, the bike shops didn't care what to, to, to look into it deeper. Um, so we sanded down the parts, looked at it all and yeah, there's voiding behind the tube and tube. And we're like, okay, well, that's interesting. This is a pretty well constructed frame why is that happening and uh we dove further down with um some analysis and uh yeah the pressure drop was causing that to happen so in our opinion uh it's better that we don't do that and we look for a better compacted carbon part um and then you know we ran our tubes or ran our our, our product without uh without that inside so it was based on what we found uh and what was upon um a lot of warranty product that we've seen out there and that was why we chose that. It's it's not impossible. I think for us uh, on V2, what we're looking to do is um, it's got to be, I think, a smarter externally routed cables is where we're going to be heading for sure. I like the sound of that. I actually wrote something on Blister a couple of weeks ago making the case for why external routing is just easier to live with and nicer and a little bit of aesthetic i just wish sram would sram would hurry up with those uh, bluetooth brakes and then we just get rid of them all completely that's our number one joke around here <laughs> yeah I'll, I'll tell them to get right on that i'm sure i'm sure those are right around the corner oh we are we already did you're way behind we already told them yeah. okay <laughs> yeah. no yeah I, uh, I think that um yeah i think that's the best way to do it for carbon in my opinion um i'm okay like with our, our routing right now is is good if I was to, you know, I can't say everything's perfect about our bike. It's the one thing that I, I'm not the happiest with is our cable routing. It works. It functions. You can chase cables through. It'll, it'll work 110%, but I think we can improve on that for sure. Fair enough. Curious to see what you cook up for that. But uh, yeah, certainly I'm into the concept of better external cable routing. So looking forward to it. Well, I think that's been a pretty good rundown on the bike. Dustin, anything else you want to cover before we kind of wrap up and get out of here yeah i mean i, I just uh want to tell everybody that uh, we're excited that the bike is out there it's it's been quite a process two years to get to this point and um make it be known that i'm, I'm extremely proud of the team um, and everybody that's been involved in the manufacturing process we've we've grown exponentially here at we are one in the last uh, year two years um we're currently sitting at 75 employees and um, every one of them is crucial to our business and uh, I want to make sure that they're all 
um, thanked for their their dedication and and their passion towards pushing these projects out there. And uh, I think when you do pick up one of our parts, um, you can look towards uh, one of those people who assigned their name or who's handled that product along the way and know that uh, they'd care deeply about what they're doing. And uh, I hope it shows. Yeah, we've certainly been impressed with the wheels we've tested from you guys so far and looking forward to getting on the arrival when we can. Yeah, well, it should be shortly here. Excellent. Well, Dustin, might be hard to top your everyone should start a bike company and work collaboratively on it. But uh, since it is bikes and big ideas, after all, do you have another big idea to follow that one up with? I would like to see uh, I would like to see someone manufacture uh, a suspension fork and a rear suspension on mass in North America in the next little while. I think that's something that we are, we're missing. And then I think we needed another drivetrain vendor in, in this industry for sure. I would really hope that those are, those are somebody or something someone's chasing. Um, and I look forward to seeing hopefully something happen in the next two to three years, um, in that, in that venture. I think those are, those are really big concepts. And I think that if, uh, if someone out there, is is working on it i'd be really impressed yeah those are good ones um i've got hope on the drivetrain in particular i mean you've got a couple companies like trp has been putting some stuff out and we reviewed it i think their first iteration is a really good start that's not quite dialed yet but they're trying good on them for having to go at it and it kind of feels like they're close enough that i have pretty high hopes for v2 basically and you know i've got a few other companies micro shift and stuff there there are a number of people working on it and i'm just hoping that one of them can really kind of get it dialed and and break in it's like you said just having the big two isn't great in a bunch of ways and it'd be cool to have some more competition there yeah i think so for sure i think that um you know, it's it's interesting because you see a lot of people on the on the uh, gearbox side of things working on it. But unfortunately, right now, I just see so much attention going to e-biking and e-bike stuff that we're 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 missing that boat, and it's uh, it's too bad. Well, Dustin, thanks for the time. It's been great having you on, and as like I've been saying, really looking forward to getting on the bike when we can. So good talking to you, and I'll let you get back to it. Right on. Thanks a lot, David. Do take care of yourself. That's it for this edition of Bikes and Big Ideas, and if you are enjoying these conversations, then we would really appreciate it if you would take 30 seconds to leave us a five-star rating or review in Apple Podcasts. I also want to say thanks to Dustin for the conversation, thanks to Taylor Ahern for producing this episode, and thanks to you for listening. From all of us at Blister, please take good care of yourself and everybody else, and we will talk to you again tomorrow on Gear 30, where we will be checking in with a skier you just might have heard of by the name of Bodie Miller. Bye, everybody.